The British poet Percy Shelley once wrote, Power, like a desolating pestilence, pollutes whatever it touches. And more recently, our friend Henry Kissinger said, Power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. And of course, then there's the famous quote by Lord Acton, the British uh, leader, who said, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, friends, why are all these people saying that? Well, the answer is that they are all astute observers of human nature. And, and as such, they have seen the incredible effect that power can have on human beings. And most often, it's not a good effect. This is what we want to talk about today. As we continue in our study of the life of David, we want to talk about the seductive force and the destructive force of power on human beings. And so I want to ask you to take a Bible and let's open it together to 2 Samuel chapter 20. 2 Samuel chapter 20. If you didn't bring a Bible, we've got a copy of the Bible for you on the back of the seat in front of you. Uh, page 230 in our copy of the Bible. 2 Samuel 20 in your copy. Can you guys out in the lobby hear me okay? Yeah, raise your hands. Can you hear? Oh, we love you guys out there. Honest, we do. 8.15, Saturday night. Honest, we love you. Got to come to a different service, maybe 8.15. Okay. Hey, okay, here we go. Ready? Um, what are we talking about? Well, we're going to talk about power, and we're going to talk about how power uh, affects our lives negatively and how we as followers of Jesus Christ can insulate our lives against the, destruct the destructive force of power. Now, a little bit of background before we start. Remember, King David's son Absalom has overthrown David, run David out of town, raised an army, chased after David, tried to kill him. David's army under his general, Joab, won the battle. Absalom was killed by Joab, ran him through, you remember, while he was hanging from his hair in a tree. And uh, against, by the way, David's expressed orders not to harm his son. Joab killed him anyway. And now David is returning to Jerusalem to retake his throne. And, and when we pick up the story, trouble suddenly erupts in Israel as David is crossing the Jordan, heading back towards Jerusalem. Verse 1, chapter 20. Now, a troublemaker named Sheba happened to be there, and he sounded the trumpet and shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son, every man to his tent, O Israel. So the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, but the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. The situation in Israel at this time was very similar to the situation here in America at the time of the Civil War. In that, yes, there was a central government, but people's loyalties here in America ran very high to their own state. Well, here in Israel at this time, there is a central government, but people's loyalties ran very high to their own tribe. And what we see here is we see the tribal jealousies ran very deep in Israel, especially between the 11 smaller tribes and the tribe of Judah, the one dominant tribe, by the way, the tribe from which David came. Now, we see that tension break out in the end of chapter 19 over an issue as trite as who escorted David back over the Jordan River. But we see it really boil over here in chapter 20 into full-fledged rebellion led by this guy named Sheba, who, oh, by the way, was no relation to the queen of. Just want to make sure you know that. No, no connection. All right. Now, verse 4. And David, verse 4, 
David sent out this uh, fellow named Amasa, saying, Summon the men of Judah to come to me within three days and be here yourself. We're going to need to go deal with this guy. Go raise the troops. Well, and who was this guy, Amasa? Amasa, we find out if you turn back to 2 Samuel 17, don't do that. But in 2 Samuel 17, verse 25, we find out that Amasa had been the commanding general of Absalom's army. The army that came out to look for and kill David. But after that battle was all over, David, you say, how did these guys end up on the same team? David, if you flip back to chapter 19, just look back one page, verse 13 He sent a message to Amasa, chapter 19, verse 13, and said, Are you not my own flesh and blood? May God deal with me ever so severely if from now on you, Amasa, are not the commander of my army in the place of Joab. After this battle was over, David made the decision he was going to take this guy, Amasa, and he was going to make him his commanding general in the place of Joab. You say, well, now, Lon, why would he want to do that? Joab won the battle. Joab has been faithful to him. Why would he want to do that? Two reasons. Number one, David was a smart politician. And he knew that Absalom had a huge following in Israel. And this was a conciliatory gesture that David was making aimed at Absalom's supporters. And if you look at chapter 19, look at verse 14, it says that it worked. He won over the hearts of the men of Judah as though they were one man, it says in verse 14 of chapter 19. But there was a deeper reason why David was doing this. And that is that, frankly, David was fed up with Joab. He was fed up with him. Joab had done a number of things to irritate David, but when Joab disobeyed David and in direct defiance of David's orders, ran Absalom through, his son through with a sword and killed him. When David said, don't do that, and Joab did it, as far as David was concerned, that was the last straw. He was done with Joab. So David now sends this new general out to rally his troops so that he can deal with this rebellion that this guy Sheba's leading. All right, now look what happens. Verse 5. And at the end of three days, it says, at the end of three days, Amasa wasn't back. So David felt he couldn't wait any longer. So he goes and gets some of the men that are right there in Jerusalem with him to send them out to go deal with this guy Sheba. And he sends them out under the command, verse 6, of Abishai. Now, who was Abishai? He was Joab's brother. He and Joab had served in the army together. These were Joab's personal troops that David was sending out. But would you notice David was so committed to removing Joab from command that he sent Joab out with Joab's personal troops, but he sends him out after under the command of Joab's brother. He says, Joab, I want you to understand. I'm sending a clear message to you, son. You are out. Kaput. Fini. Done. Hand your stars in. It's over. Hang up your boots. You're done. And I want you to know that. And if it's not Amasa, it'll be your brother. But it's not you. I'm done with you. You're out of command. Well, how do you think old Joab was feeling right about now? Think Joab was happy? You think he was saying, oh, well, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Think that was his attitude? Not on your life. Not this guy. Look what he does. Verse 8. It says, it says, while they were at the great rock in Gibeon, they were marching north at Joab and Abishai and their troops. Here comes Amasa coming back to meet them. And Joab was wearing a military tunic and strapped. He had it strapped over his waist. And on his waist, there was a dagger. 
that was under his cloak. Nobody could see it. And as they stepped forward, he dropped it out of its sheath and ran it up his sleeve in his left hand. And Joab said to Amasa, how are you, my brother? By the way, Amasa is his cousin. How are you, my brother? Then Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. And Amasa was not on his guard against the dagger that was in Joab's left hand. And Joab, look what he did, plunged the knife into his belly and his intestines spilled out onto the ground. Without being stabbed again, Amasa died. Now, uh, Joab made what what was later called a centurion's cut on this man, where you would take someone and slice them across the abdomen in, abdomen in one horizontal stripe, and all of their entrails would come out. That's what he did to this guy. And, um, and, and, and he, he just killed him. Verse 11. And one of Joab's men then stood beside Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab, and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa was wallowing in his blood in the middle of the road, And that man who was standing there saw that all the troops came to a halt there. When he realized that everyone who came up to Amasa stopped, he dragged him off the road into a field and threw a garment over him. And after Amasa had been removed from the road, all the men went on with, look, with Joab to pursue Sheba. Now, now folks, do you pick up what just happened here? Joab just took over again. Did you get that? He just took over again. He just restored himself to being commander of the army. He kills Amasa, so he's out of the way. He intimidates his brother, Abishai, right out of command. We never hear Abishai again. He's intimidated. He backs down. And Joab says, hey, folks, I'm the big dog again. Has this guy standing on the road next to the pile of blood going, if you're for David, you're for Joab. Follow Joab. Here we go. And before you could shake a stick, Joab's in control. And who's going to argue with him? You going to argue with him? You see a guy laying there with his entrails hanging out all over the road that Joab just killed? You going to argue with this guy? I don't think so. By the way, Joab was a pretty fearsome guy, friends. The Bible says he never lost a single battle he ever led the army into, which is a pretty impressive feat, I think. This is a fearsome guy. And Joab stayed in command of David's army now for the rest of David's life. This was the last attempt David ever made to remove the guy. Now, this is the end of our passage, but of course, it leads us to ask the most important question. And you know what the most important question is, don't you? Ready? One, two, three. Yeah, you say, so what? Lon say, I've never made a centurion's cut on anybody and I never want one on me. So what does this have to do with anything? I mean, this doesn't relate to me at all. Well, I, I think it does. This is not about a centurion's cut. This is about power and a lust for power and what people are willing to do to hold on to power and how power corrupted this man Joab's life. And if that's not 20th century, I don't know what is. You know, Francis Bacon once said, the highest proof of virtue is to possess power without abusing it. The highest demonstration of personal virtue is for a person to possess power and not abuse it. Well, that wasn't our friend Joab. Let's talk a little bit about this guy. He was David's nephew. As I mentioned, he was a fearsome warrior that the Bible never records ever losing a battle. But he had some problems. And his biggest one was this was a man who was driven by a lust for power. When his power was threatened in any way, he became ruthless about holding on to it, using treachery, deception, intimidation, betrayal, brutality, and even murder in cold blood 
anything he had to do to hold on to his power and influence. Now, look what it did to the man's life, this lust for power. Number one, Joab's lust for power resulted in, in first of all, his compromising his integrity. You say, when did he do that? Do you remember when David decided to kill Bathsheba's husband, a fellow named Uriah, and sent the guy to the front with a message saying, put him in the heat of the battle and then suddenly withdraw from him and leave him exposed so that he dies? Who do you think he sent that message to to carry that out? Well, go back and check it out. Second Samuel 11. It was Joab who carried that out. But instead of standing up and saying, King, this is wrong. King, this is, this is evil. This has no integrity. I'm not doing this to a fellow comrade in arms. Did he do that? No. He did exactly what David told him to do because that's what he knew he had to do to hold on to his power and it was worth sacrificing Uriah's life. He compromised his integrity because he wanted power. The second thing that his lust for power did is it resulted in his turning on his very own cousin, Amasa, right here in 2 Samuel 20 and brutally murdering the guy in cold blood. Joab's lust for power third resulted in his selfishly pushing his brother aside from a chance at leadership. I mean, here was his brother being given an opportunity for the first time to really be a leader. Wouldn't you think the guy might have said, hey, brother, this is this is great. I'm so happy for you. I've been the leader for a while, but you're my brother. I think this is great. You get to be the leader for a while because I love you, man. I love you. Is this his attitude? Not at all. He took his brother, boom, pushed him right down out of leadership and kept him there. Why? Because Joab wanted the power of being leader and he didn't even care if it was his brother who got in his way. Fourth and finally, Joab's lust for power eventually resulted in his willingness to betray David himself. Turn on David himself, his lifelong relationship with David to destroy it. And this happened at the end of David's life. When David had picked a new successor, his son Solomon, Joab knew Solomon had no intention of keeping him as commander of the army. So what Joab did is he went and threw in with Solomon's mutinous brother, a fellow named Adonijah, who was trying to keep Solomon from becoming king, trying to become king instead. The result is Solomon caught Joab and he executed him executed him for throwing in with his brother. The point, friends, of all of this is that if you want to see an example of the seductiveness of power and its disastrous consequences, look at Joab. Joab's love of power ended up, one, defiling him as a man, two, hurting, leading to him damaging people everywhere he went, and three, ended up eventually destroying him. Now, 3,000 years later, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Power is still an incredible, seductive force in our world. And human beings are still drawn to it the way bees are to honey. And whatever amount of power God may ever give you or me, I can tell you something, and it's categorically true, unless you and I handle it right, it is absolutely certain that that power will corrupt our character it is absolutely certain that power will cause us to damage people around us. And it is absolutely certain that power will lead to personal disaster in our lives, just as it did in Joab's life, if we don't learn how to handle it safely. So how do you do that? Say, Lon, how do you handle power safely in a healthy way? Well, I've got three suggestions as we close this morning to give you from the Bible. And here they are. Ready? Three suggestions that I don't care how much power God gives you, if you'll follow these three suggestions, you'll be able to handle it safely. Number one, if you want to handle power safely, number one, you've got to see all power as a direct gift 
from God. It's a gift from God. Psalm 75, verse 6. Look what it says. It says, not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south comes exaltation, comes power and influence. God is the one who lifts up one person and gives them power and influence and takes another person down and takes power and influence away from them. God is the one who does that. You know, I was out on the Beltway the other day and I saw one of these total power cars. I don't know what kind of car it was, but it just had power car written all over it. I am a big shot written all over it, you know. And there was a bumper sticker on the back and it had three simple words on it. It said in big letters, I earned it on the bumper. I earned it. And I was riding behind this car reading, I earned it on the bumper. And thinking to myself, now, if God had the opportunity to speak to Mr. You know, corporate exec or whoever it is driving this thing, what would God say to this guy? Well, I believe God would say, sorry, pal, you got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. That bumper sticker is not even close to being right. The power, the influence that you have, it's not a function of your own effort, your own cleverness, your own smarts, your own capacities, your own toughness. That's not right. It's a function of my sovereign decision to give you that power, and I can take it away from you anytime I want. The only reason you've got it is because it's my pleasure for you to keep it. Now, friends, whatever power you have, God would say the same thing to you and me. Don't you dare put a bumper sticker on your car saying you earned it. Don't you dare do that, because you didn't. You didn't. Lots of people work just as hard as you, maybe harder than you and aren't where you are today, because that's not how people get where they are. It's God's sovereign decision to put people where they are. And that means that power and influence and position has to be seen as a sacred stewardship that's been entrusted to us by Almighty God, and, and that we hold on to it at His pleasure. It's not an entitlement. It's not a reward. It's not something we did with our own effort. It is a gift from God, and when we begin to see power this way, when we begin to see influence this way, it produces a profound change in our attitude towards power, towards influence and position. It results in an attitude of humility that says, hey, I didn't get myself here. God put me here. I don't have anything to boast about, be proud about. I'm only here because of the sovereign, gracious choice of God to put me here. And oh, by the way, whenever God decides to take me out of here, not anything I'm going to do is going to stop it. This is about God, not me. And friends, that kind of humility is key Because one of the most important ingredients that we need to handle power safely is humility. When you mix power with arrogance, you have a certain formula for destruction. Humility. And you get to be humble about it by remembering you didn't do this, folks. God did this for you. And it's in His pleasure you're where you are. Second of all, if we're going to handle power safely... The Bible says that we have to remain aware of our mortality, acutely aware of the fact that one day we're out of here. James 4, verse 14. What is our life? We're like a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes, which is why Moses writes, teach us, Lord, to number our days aright, meaning teach us to realize that we're only here for a very short time so that we might gain a heart of wisdom. When we become honest about the fact that we're mortal, we're leaving, this is not happening forever, we're a vapor, one day we're going to be out of here and gone, that has amazing ability to bring wisdom to the way we live. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, may I say, this is wisdom that you need in your life 
the wisdom to understand that one of these days you're leaving here and you need to be prepared for that day. That's why the prophet Amos wrote and said, prepare now to meet your God, because one of these days being mortal, that's going to happen. And if you've not made preparations yet to meet God, my friends, you have not, as the Bible says it, gained a heart of wisdom. You've not used your head. The way you prepare to meet God is you trust what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, paying for your sins, purchasing eternal life for you. And that's a preparation you and I need to make now because we're mortal. One of these days we're out of here. We're going to face God. We better be ready. I hope you'll think about that. But for those of us here that are followers of Jesus Christ, this has enormous impact also on the subject we're talking about, the subject of dealing with power, because when we grasp our mortality and realize that we're leaving here one day, that all the power we have, all the influence we have, all the position we have, one of these days we're laying it all down, it'll help you handle it in a more healthy way while you got it. You know, we have a ministry here called Frontline. Frontline is a ministry to 20-year-olds and late teens and people in their early 30s, Generation Xers, uh, the, the postmodern generation, whatever you want to call them, 20-somethings. And um, as far as we know, and this is not an ego statement, it's just a statement of fact, as far as we know, we have the largest ministry to Generation Xers within a traditional existing church anywhere in America. And Ken Ball, who's the leader of Frontline, when he's asked, when he goes places and asks, how in the world were you guys able to achieve this? He's very open and honest and says, well, there's a couple of things. My relationship with Lon, the elders' willingness to let a second paradigm operate inside the same church. And another part of this is Lon's willingness to let go of control and let go of power so that young adults can have some opportunity to flourish. And we were at a conference in Dallas uh, together, Ken and I were this last week, and I had a seminary professor come up and, uh, and ask about this comment that Ken made and say, well, how did you figure out, how did you learn to do this? I said, it's very easy. It's not really complex. I sat down and said to myself, Lon, one day you're going to die. It's not hard. One day you're going to turn loose of every bit of power, every bit of control, every bit of influence, so, uh, you know, and you can't take that with you. The only thing you can take with you into eternity, Lon, are changed lives, or is the impact we make for people for Jesus Christ. And if it means turning loose of some power and control in order to be able to do that, if it means empowering people in order to be able to do that, the fact that I, if I were immortal, I'd say, no, I'm not doing that. But I'm not. I'm leaving here. So when you know you're going to die, it really helps turn loose of stuff. I love what, what Jim Elliott, the great missionary, said. He said, he's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Friends, you can't keep the power anyway. You can't keep the influence anyway. You can't keep the position anyway. So why are you holding on to it like you can? One day you're going to die, turn loose of it anyway. To compromise your integrity, to damage people and hurt people, to self-destruct your life and implode... All to keep something that you can't hold on to anyway. Does that make a whole lot of logical sense? I don't think so. Hey, get real about the fact you're turning loose of this stuff anyway. Don't sacrifice yourself to keep what you're not keeping anyway. Third and finally, last point, is that if we're going to handle power safely, we've got to learn to see the purpose of power biblically. We've got to see the purpose of power through the eyes of the Bible. And I love what Jesus said to his disciples when they were arguing about who was the greatest, who was the big shot, who was going to have the most power and influence. Remember what he said to them? I love what he said. Luke 22. He said, the kings of the Gentiles love 
to lord their power under those that are under them. They love to act just like you guys are acting. But as my followers, you are not to live this way. Whoever among you wants to be the greatest, have the most position, have the most power, let me tell you what he ought to do. He needs to become the servant of all. Just as Jesus went on to say that just as I, the Messiah, did not come to be served, but I came to serve you guys. Friends, whatever measure of power God has granted you, my friend, in your career, in your office, in your school, in your family, on your athletic team, in the military, the secret to not abusing of that power and not misusing that power is for you and me to see that we were given that power for one purpose and one purpose only, and that purpose was not to benefit us. That purpose was to use it to serve and help and bless the lives of other people. That's why God gives power, so it can be used to serve other people. I got an interesting article out of Time magazine a while back, written by a Harvard Medical School psychologist, Stephen Berglis. And Stephen Berglis uh, at Harvard Med School did a study of people who, as quoting now, who, who, as he say, achieve stellar success without the psychological bedrock to prevent disorder. These are people who marshal resources and get lots of loyal people around them, but they are affected by their success in such a way that they ultimately implode. They self-destruct. So who are some of the people he looked at? Well, Donald Trump, Leona Helmsley, Howard Hughes, Dennis Levine, Pete Rose, Gary Hart, Amelda Marcos, Jimmy Swagger, Jim Baker, on the list goes. And the guy studied these people as a Harvard psychologist. Now, listen to what he found. He said, there are plenty of successful people who don't self-destruct, like Sam Walton, one of the richest men in America, who steadfastly maintained a commitment to serve others, to benefit the people of Arkansas, to motivate his employees, to live modestly. This is the kind of leader who is an example of someone who handles power safely. And then he goes on to conclude by saying this, Harvard Med School, what's often missing in these self-destructive people is deep community or religious activity that goes beyond just writing a check. He says, I think everyone who gets a $100,000 plus job on Wall Street should be assumed guilty of this and sentenced to do community service as a pre-penalty. That's what he says. He says, I can't emphasize it enough. Take your next class of NBAs, and as they're coming in the door of Solomon Brothers, sentence them to go be part of a community and serve other people for a while. He concludes by saying, when they do this, when you become part of a community, when you subordinate yourselves to a greater cause and serve others, then you don't take advantage of people, you don't exploit people, and you don't abuse power. Harvard. Isn't it wonderful to see Harvard catching up with the Bible? This is wonderful. Because Jesus has been saying this for 2,000 years. That the way to become great is to go out and serve. The way not to abuse power is to see power not as an entitlement to bless you, but as an opportunity to go out and benefit and serve other people. And if we can see power that way, my friends, I maintain that will keep us from becoming a victim of it. If that's how we can see it. Now, let me conclude by saying, as we all know, Washington, D.C. is power town, USA. We all know that people worship power in this town. People would kill for power in this town and have done it. 
And many of us here in this auditorium today are privileged, living here in Washington, to enjoy a certain measure of power and influence. Some of us in the audience have a lot of power and influence. Friends, being in that kind of position is like handling a cobra. You better know how to handle it safely or it's going to bite you and you're going to die. How do you handle power safely? Influence, position. Number one, you have to see it all, every bit of it, as a gift from God. It's not yours. It's a gift from God at his sovereign choice. That's why you are where you are. Not about you. It's about him. Second, we've got to stay aware of our mortality. We've got to understand one day we're giving it all up. So handle it in such a way that when we give it up, we can look at ourselves in the mirror. And third and finally, we've got to see the purpose of power biblically as an opportunity to help other people, as an opportunity to serve other people, not as an opportunity to benefit ourselves. And let me tell you what I've learned. I have learned as God has chosen over the years to be gracious and give me certain opportunities. I've learned if you follow these three principles, if this is really the way you see power, position, influence, you can take as much power, position and influence as God ever chooses to give you. If you handle it according to these three principles, it will not destroy you. You can use it as a blessing. So may God help us do that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you know we live in a power town. It's all around us. And as we've said, people worship this stuff. People sell their lives for this stuff. People make packs with the devil for this stuff. People sell out their integrity. People run over and hurt other people. And many folks self-destruct. All to try to get this thing called power. God, my prayer is that you would speak to us from the word of God today about being different people. People who see power through the lens of the scripture, through the lens of the word of God. And Lord, change our whole outlook on influence and position and authority so that we can handle it safely and in a healthy way. Lord Jesus, make us people who see every little bit of power as a direct gift from you. It's a stewardship, not a right. Lord, help us to be aware of our mortality. Help us not violate ourselves to hold on to something that we're going to turn loose of one day anyway. And Lord Jesus, help us to see power the way you see it. Influence the way you see it. As an opportunity to serve and benefit others. Not as an opportunity to build up and benefit ourselves. Change our perspective in our lives because we were here today, I pray. Make us healthy people here in Washington for your sake. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.